Hi everyone, this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the American frontier at 1001 Stories from the Old West. Here you'll find stories about law keepers and lawbreakers, Indian fighters, prospectors, newspaper men, and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later. It was a wild time in what Congressman Davy Crockett called this britches bustin' country and an important time in American history. We hope you enjoy tonight's story. Today we will be reading The Passing of the Frontier, A Chronicle of the Old West by Emerson Howe, published by Yale University Press in 1918, chapters 1 through 3. I have taken the liberty of editing out some of the more archaic language and some of the florid descriptions and in the final paragraph, I have added some current references to make it a little more timely. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. The Frontier. There is no word in the English language more stirring, more intimate, or more beloved. It has all the elan of the old French phrase, en avant. It carries all of the old Saxon command, forward. It means all that America ever meant. It means the old hope of a real personal liberty and yet a real human advance in character and achievement. To a genuine American, it is the dearest word in all the world. The fascination of the frontier is and has ever been an undying thing. Adventure is the meat of the strong men who have built the world for those more timid. The adventure and the frontier are one and inseparable. They suggest strength, and courage, hardihood, qualities beloved in men since the world began, qualities which are the very soul of the United States. Take away all our history of political regimes, take away our somewhat inglorious military past, but leave us forever the tradition of the American frontier. The frontier was the place and the time of the strong man, of the self-sufficient but restless individual. It was the home of the rebel, the Protestant, the unreconciled, the intolerant, the ardent, and the resolute. It was not the conservative and tender man who made our history. It was the man, sometimes illiterate, oftentimes uncultured, the man of coarse garb and rude weapons. But the frontiersmen were the true dreamers of the nation. They really were the possessors of a national vision. Not statesmen, but riflemen and riders made America. The noblest conclusions of American history still rest upon premises which they laid. Our frontier crawled west from the first seaports of settlement, afoot, on horseback, in barges, or with slow wagon trains. It crawled across the Alleghenies, down the Great River, across the plains. In our own day, however, the Old West, generally means the old cow country of the West. The high plains and the lower foothills running from the Rio Grande to the northern boundary. Always when we use these words, we think of buffalo plains and of Indians and of their passing before the footmen and riders who carried the flag from the Appalachians to the Rockies. We call the spirit of the frontier Elizabethan or English, Saxon in nature, and so it was but even as the Elizabethan age was marked by its contact with the Spanish civilization in Europe on the high seas and in both the Americas, 
so the last frontier of the American West also was affected, and largely, deeply, by Spanish influence and Spanish customs. The very phraseology of range work bears proof of this. Scores of Spanish words are written indelibly in the language of the plains. The frontier of the cow range never was Saxon alone. It is a curious fact also, seldom if ever noted, that this old west of the plains was very largely southern and not northern on its Saxon side. No states contributed to the forces of the frontiersmen so much as Kentucky and Tennessee, daughters of old Virginia in her glory. Texas, farther to the south, put her stamp indelibly upon the entire cattle industry of the west. Visionary, impractical, restless, adventurous, these later Elizabethan heroes, bowing to no yoke, insisting on their own rights, and scorning often the laws of others, yet careful to retain the best and most advantageous customs of any conquered country, naturally came from those nearest Elizabethan countries which lay abandoned behind them. When, in 1803, those two immortal youths, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, were about to go forth on their great journey across the continent, they were admonished by Thomas Jefferson that they would, in all likelihood, encounter in their travels, living and stalking about, the mammoth, or the mastodon, whose bones had been found in the great salt licks of Kentucky. We smile now at such a supposition, yet it was not unreasonable then. No man knew that tremendous country that lay beyond the mouth of the Missouri. The explorers crossed one portion of a vast land which was like nothing they had ever seen, the region later to become the great cattle range of America. It reached, although they could know nothing of that, from the Spanish possessions on the south across a thousand miles of short grasslands to the present Canadian boundary line, which certain obdurate American souls still say ought to have been at 54 degrees 40 minutes and not where it is. From the Rio Grande to 5440, indeed, would have made nice measurements for the Saxon cattle range. Little, however, was the value of this land understood by the explorers, and for more than half a century afterward, it commonly was supposed to be useless for the occupation of white men and suitable only as a hunting ground for savage tribes. Most of us can remember the school maps of our own youth, showing a vast region marked vaguely the Great American Desert, which was considered hopeless for any human industry, but much of which has since proved as rich as any land anywhere on the globe. Perhaps it was the treeless nature of the vast plains which carried the first idea of their infertility. When the first settlers of Illinois and Indiana came up from south of the Ohio River, they had their choice of timber and prairie lands. Thinking the prairies worthless, since land which could not raise a tree certainly could not raise crops, these first occupants of the Middle West spent a generation or more axe in hand along the heavily timbered river bottoms. The prairies were long in settling. No one could have predicted that farmlands in that region would be worth $300 an acre or better, and that these prairies of the Mississippi Valley would, in a few generations, be studded with great towns and would form a part of the granary of the world. But if our early explorers, 
passing beyond the valley of the Missouri, found valueless the region of the plains and the foothills, not so the wild creatures or the savage men who had lived there longer than science records. The buffalo then ranged from the Rio Grande to the Athabasca, from the Missouri to the Rockies, and beyond. No one seems to have concluded in those days that there was, after all, slight difference between the buffalo and the domestic ox. The native cattle, however, in untold thousands and millions, had even then proved the sustaining and strengthening nature of the grasses of the plains. Now, each creature, even of human species, must adjust itself to its environment. Having done so, commonly it is disposed to love that environment. The Eskimo and the Zulu each thinks that he has the best land in the world. So, with the American Indian, who, supported by the vast herds of buffalo, ranged all over that tremendous country, which was later to be given over to the white man and his domestic cattle. No freer life was ever lived than by the horse Indians of the plains in the buffalo days. On the buffalo range, that is to say, on the cattle range which was to be, Lewis and Clark met several bands of the Sioux, the Mandans and the Assiniboines, the Blackfeet, the Shoshones. Further south were the Pawnees, the Kaws, the Otos, and the Osages, most of whom depended in part upon the buffalo for their living, though the Otos, the Pawnees, and the Mandans, and certain others, now and then raised a little corn or a few squash to help out their bill of fare. Still, further south dwelt the Kiowas, the Comanches, and others, the Arapahoes, the Cheyennes, the Crows, and the Utes, all hunters were soon to come into the ken of white men. It was nearly half a century after the journey of Lewis and Clark that the 49ers were crossing the plains, whither, meanwhile, the Mormons had trekked in search of a country where they might live as they liked. Still, the wealth of the plains remained untouched. California was in the eyes of the world. The great cow range was overleaped. But in the early 50s, when the placer fields of California began to be less numerous and less rich, the half-savage population of the miners roared on northward, even across our northern line. Soon it was rolled back. Next, it worked east and southeast and northeast over the great dry plains of Washington and Oregon, so that, as readily as may be seen, the cow range proper was not settled as most of the west was, by a directly westbound thrust of an eastern population. But, on the contrary, it was approached from several different angles, from the north, from the east, from the west, and northwest, and finally from the south. The early, turbulent population of miners and adventurers was crude, lawless, and aggressive. It cared nothing whatever for the Indian tribes. War, instant and merciless, where it meant murder for the most part, was set on foot as soon as the white touched red in that far western region. All these new white men who had crowded into the unknown country of the plains, the Rockies, the Sierras, and the Cascades had to be fed. They could not employ and remain content with the means by which the red man there had always fed himself. Hence, a new industry sprang up in the United States, which of itself made certain history in that land the business of freighting supplies to the West, whether by bull train or by pack train, very highly specialized and pursued by men of great business ability, 
as well as by men of great hardihood and daring. Each of these freight trains went west, carried, hanging on its flank, more and more of the white men. As the trains returned, more and more was learned in the states of the new country which lay between the Missouri and the Rockies, which ran no man knew how far north and no man could guess how far south. Now appears in history Fort Benton on the Missouri, the great northern supply post, just as at an earlier date there had appeared Fort Hall, one of the old fur trading posts beyond the Rockies, Bent's Fort on the Arkansas, and many other outposts of the new Saxon civilization in the West. Later came the Pony Express and the stagecoach, which made history and romance for a generation. Feverishly, boisterously, a strong, rugged, womanless population crowded westward and formed the wavering, now advancing, now receding line of the great frontier of American history. But for long, there was no sign of permanent settlement on the plains, and no one thought of this region as the frontier. The men there were prospecting and exploiting, were classified as no more than adventurers. No one seemed to have taken a lesson from the Indian and the buffalo. The reports of Fremont long since had called attention to the nourishing quality of those grasses of the high country, but the day of the cowboy had not yet dawned. There is a somewhat feeble story which runs to the effect that in 1866 one of the great wagon trains, caught by the early snows of winter, was obliged to abandon its oxen on the range. It was supposed, of course, that the oxen must perish during the winter, but next spring the owners were surprised to find that the oxen, so far from perishing, had flourished very much indeed, were fat and in good condition. So runs the story, which is often repeated. It may be true, but to accredit to this incident the beginnings of the cattle industry in the Indian country would surely be going too far. The truth is that the cow industry was not a Saxon discovery. It was a Latin enterprise, flourishing in Mexico long before the first of these miners and adventurers came upon the range. Something was known of the Spanish lands to the south through the explorations of Pike, but more through the commerce of the prairies. The old wagon trade from the Missouri River to the Spanish cities of Santa Fe and Chihuahua now the cow business south of the Rio Grande was already well differentiated and developed at the time of the first adventurers from the United States went into Texas and began to crowd their Latin neighbors for more room. There it was that our Saxon frontiersmen first discovered the cattle industry. But these southern and northern riflemen, ruthless and savage, yet strangely statesmanlike, though they might betimes drive away the owners of the herds, troubled little about the herds themselves. There was a certain fascination to these rude strangers in the slow and easeful civilization of old Spain, which they encountered in the land below them. Little by little, and then largely by yet more largely, the warriors of San Jacinto reached out and began to claim lands for themselves, leagues and uncounted leagues of land, which had, however, no market value. Well within the memory of the present generation, large tracts of good land were bought in Texas for six cents an acre. Some was bought for half that price in a time not much earlier. 
Today, much of that land is producing wealth, but land then was worthless, and so were cows. This civilization of the Southwest, of the New Republic of Texas, may be regarded as the first enduring American result of contact with the Spanish industry. The men who won Texas came mostly from Kentucky and Tennessee, or southern Ohio, and the first colonizer of Texas was a Virginian, Stephen Fuller Austin. They came along the old Natchez Trace from Nashville to the Mississippi River, that highway which has so much history of its own. Down this old winding trail into the greatest valley of all the world, and beyond that valley out into the Spanish country, moved steadily the adventurers whose fathers had but recently crossed the Appalachians. One of the strongest thrusts of the American civilization thus entered the cattle range at its lower end, between the Rio Grande and the Red River. In all the several activities, mining, freighting, scouting, soldiering, riding Pony Express, or even sheer adventuring for what might come, there was ever a trading back and forth between home-staying men and adventuring men. Thus, there was an interchange of knowledge and of customs between East and West, between our old country and our new. There was an interchange, too, at the South, where our Saxon civilization came in touch with that of Mexico. We have now to note some fundamental facts and principles of the cattle industry, which our American cattlemen took over, ready-made from the hands of Mexico. The Mexicans in Texas had an abundance of small, hardy horses of African and Spanish breed, which Spain had brought into the New World. We'll return right after these sponsor messages. And now, back to our story. The same horses that the Moors had brought into Spain, a breed naturally hardy and able to subsist upon dry food, Without such horses, there could have been no cattle industry. These horses, running wild in herds, had crossed the upper plains. Lewis and Clark had found the Indians using horses in the north. The Indians, as we have seen, had learned to manage the horse. Formerly, they had used dogs to drag the travoy, but now they used the elk dog, as they first called the horse. In the original cow country, that is, in Mexico and Texas, countless herds of cattle were held in a loose sort of ownership over wide and unknown plains. Like all wild animals in that warm country, they bred in extraordinary numbers. The southern range, indeed, has always been called the breeding range. The cattle had little value. He who wanted beef killed beef. He who wanted leather killed cattle for their hides. But beyond these, scant and infrequent uses, cattle had no definite value. The Mexican, however, knew how to handle cows. He could ride a horse and he could rope cattle and brand them. Most of the cattle of a wide range would go to certain water holes more or less regularly, where they might be roughly collected or estimated. This coming of the cattle to the watering places made it unnecessary for owners of cattle to acquire ranch land. It was enough to secure the waterfront where the cows must go to drink. His right to the increase he could prove by another phenomenon of nature, just as inevitable and invariable as that of thirst. The maternal instinct of a cow and the dependence of the calf upon his mother 
gave the old rancher of immemorial times sufficient proof of ownership in the increase of his herd. The calf would run with its own mother and with no other cow through its first season, so that if an old Mexican ranchero saw a certain number of cows at his watering place and with them calves, he knew that all before him were his property, or at least he claimed them as such and used them. Still, this was loose-footed property. It might stray away, after all, or it might be driven away. Hence, in some forgotten time, our shrewd Spaniard invented a system of proof of ownership which has always lain at the very bottom of the organized cow industry. He invented the method of branding. This meant his sign, his name, his trademark, his proof of ownership. The animal could not shake it off, it would not burn off in the sun or wash off in the rain. It went with the animal and could not be eradicated from the animal's hide. Wherever the bearer was seen, the brand upon its hide provided certain identification of the owner. Now all these basic ideas of the cow industry were old in the lower range in Texas when our white men first drifted there. The cattle industry, although in its infancy and although supposed to have no great future, was developed long before Texas became a republic. It never indeed changed very much from that time until the end of its own career. One great principle was accepted religiously even in those early and crude days. A man's cow was his cow. A man's brand was his brand. There must be no interference with that ownership. Hence, certain other phases of the industry followed inevitably. These cattle these calves, each branded by the iron of the owner, in spite of all precautions, began to mingle as settlers became more numerous. Hence came the idea of the roundup. The country was warm and lazy. If a hundred or a thousand cows were not collected, very well. If a calf were separated from its mother, very well. The old ranchers never quarreled among themselves. They never would have made in the South anything like a cattle association. It was left for the Yankees to do that at a time when the cows had come to have far greater value. There were few arguments in the first rodeos of the lower range. One rancher would vie with his neighbor in generosity in the manner of unbranded calves. Haggling would have been held contemptible. On the lower range in the old times, no one cared much about a cow. Why should they? There was no market for cows, no one who wished to buy them. If one tendered a Mexican cinco pesos for a yearling or a two-year-old, the owner might perhaps offer the animal as a gift, or he might smile and say, con mucho gusto, as he was handed a few pieces of silver. There were plenty of cows everywhere in the world. Let us therefore give the old Spaniard full credit alike in picturesque romance and in the organized industry of the cow. The westbound thrust which came upon the upper part of the range in the days of more shrewd and exacting business methods was simply the best known and most published phase of frontier life in the cow country. Hence, we have usually accepted it as typical. It would not be accurate to say that the cattle industry was basically much influenced or governed by northern or eastern men. In practically all of its great phenomena, the frontier of the old cow range was southern by birth and growth. There lay, then, 
so long unused, that vast and splendid land, so soon to write romantic history of its own, so soon to come into the admiration or the wonder of a great portion of the earth, a land of fascinating interest to the youth of every country, and a region whose story holds charm for young and old alike, even today. It was a region royal in its dimensions. Far on the west it was hedged in by the gray-sided and white-topped mountains, the Rockies. Where the buffalo once lived, the cattle were to live. High up in the foothills of this great mountain range, which ran from the Rio Grande to Canada. On the east, where lay the prairies, rather than the plains, it was a country wavering with high native grasses, with many brilliant flowers hiding among them, the sweet william, the wild rose, and often great masses of the yellow sunflower. From the Rio Grande to the Athabasca, for the greater part, the frontier sky was blue and cloudless during most of the year. The rainfall was not great. The atmosphere was dry. It was a cheerful country, one of optimism and not of gloom. In the extreme south along the Rio Grande, the climate was moister, warmer, more enervating. But on the high steps of the middle range in Colorado, Wyoming, Montana, western Nebraska, there lay the finest out-of-doors country, man's country, the finest of the earth. But for the time, busy with more accustomed things, mining and freighting and fighting and hunting and trading and trapping, we Americans who had arrived upon the range cared little for cows. The upper thrust of the great herds from the south into the north had not begun. It was after the Civil War that the first great drives of cattle from the south toward the north began, and after men had learned in the state of Texas that cattle moved from the Rio Grande to the upper portions of the state, and fed on mesquite grass would attain greater stature than in that hot coast country. Then, swiftly, somewhat luridly, there leaped into our comprehension and our interest that strange country, long loosely held under our flag, the region of the plains, the region which we now call the Old West. In great bands, in long lines, slowly, tow-headed, sore-footed, the vast gatherings of the prolific lower range moved north, each cow with its title indelibly marked upon its hide. These cattle were now going to take the place of those on which the Indians had depended for their living these many years. A new day in American history had dawned. Under all the exuberance of the life of the range, there lay a steady business of tremendous size and enormous values. The uproarious iniquity of the West, its picturesqueness, its vividness, these were but froth on the stream. The stream itself was a steady and somber flood. The American cowboy is the most modern representative of a human industry that is second to very few in antiquity. There is in history no agency so wondrous in events, no working instrumentality so great, as transportation. Perhaps the first men traveled by hollowed logs downstream. Then, possibly the idea of a sail was conceived. Early in the story of the United States, men made commercial journeys from the head of the Ohio to the mouth of the Mississippi by flatboat and came back by keelboat. 
and presently there was to come that tremendous upheaval wrought by the advent of the iron trails which, scorning alike waterways and mountain ranges, flung themselves almost directly westward across the continent. The iron trails crossing the northern range soon after the Civil War brought a market to the cattle country. Inevitably, the men of the lower range would seek to reach the railroads with what they had to sell, their greatest natural product, cattle on the hoof. This was the primary cause of the great northbound drives already mentioned, the greatest pastoral phenomenon in the history of the world. The southern herds at that time had no market at their doors. They had to go to market, and they had to go on foot. That meant they must be driven northward by cattle handlers who had passed their days in the wild life of the lower range. These cowmen, of course, took their character and their customs northward with them, and so they were discovered by those enthusiastic observers, newly arrived by rail, whom the cowmen were wont to call pilgrims. Now the trail of the great cattle drives, the long trail, was a thing of tremendous importance in itself. The braiding of a hundred minor pathways, the long trail lay like a vast rope connecting the cattle country of the south with that of the north. Lying loose or coiling, it ran for more than 2,000 miles along the eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains. It traversed in a fair line the vast land of Texas, curled over the Indian nations, over Kansas, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, and Montana, and it bent in wide overlapping circles as far as Utah and Nevada, as far east as Missouri, Iowa, and even Illinois, and as far north as the British possessions. The long trail was surveyed and constructed in a century and a day. Over the Red River of the South, there appeared almost without warning vast processions, processions of enormous wealth owned by kings who paid no tribute and guarded by men who knew no master. The long trail received then, as it did later, a baptism of human blood such as no other pathway of the continent has known. It was the beginning of a feudalism of the range, a barony rude enough, but a glorious one, albeit it began, like all feudalism, in large-handed theft and generous murdering. The flock of these strong men, carelessly interlapping, increased and multiplied amazingly. They were hardly looked upon as wealth. The people could not eat a tithe of the beef. They could not use a hundredth of the leather. Over hundreds and hundreds of miles of ownerless grasslands, by the rapid waters of the mountains, by the slow streams of the plains or the long and dark lagoons of the low coast country, the herds of tens grew into droves of hundreds, of thousands, of hundreds of thousands. This was really the dawning of the American cattle industry. It seemed clear that a great population in the north needed the cheap beef of Texas, and the main question appeared to be one of transportation. The Civil War stopped almost all plans to market the range cattle, and the close of that war found the vast grazing lands of Texas covered fairly with millions of cattle which had no actual or determinate value. They were sorted and branded and herded after a fashion. But neither they nor their increase could be converted into anything but more cattle. 
the cry for a market became imperative. Meantime, the Anglo-Saxon civilization was rolling swiftly toward the Upper West. The Indians were being driven from the plains. A solid army was pressing behind the vanguard of the soldier, scout, and plainsman. The railroads were pushing out into a new and untracked empire. They carried the market with them. The long trail leaped north again, definitely, this time springing across the Red River and up to the railroads, along sharp and well-defined channels, deepened in the year of 1866 alone by the hooves of more than a quarter of a million cattle. By this time, 1867 and 1868, the northern portions of the region immediately to the east of the Rocky Mountains had been sufficiently cleared of their wild inhabitants to admit a gradual, though precarious, settlement. Moreover, the government was now feeding thousands of its new red wards, and these Indians needed thousands of beeves for rations, which were driven from the southern range to the upper army posts and reservations. Between this government demand and that of the territorial stock ranges, there was occupation for the men who made the saddle their home. The long trail which had previously found the black corn lands of Illinois and Missouri now crowded to the west until it had reached Utah and Nevada and penetrated every open park and mesa and valley of Colorado and found all the high plains of Wyoming Cheyenne and Laramie became common words now, and drovers spoke as wisely of the dangers of the Platte as a year before they had mentioned those of the Red River or the Arkansas. The long trail of the cattle range was done. By magic, the cattle industry had spread over the entire West. Today, many men think of that industry as belonging only to the Southwest, and many would consider that it was transferred to the North. Really, it was not transferred, but extended, and the trail of the old drive marks the line of that extension. Today, the long trail is replaced by other trails, Interstate 25, Interstate 35, the north-south roads of the old U.S. highway system, all connecting the cattle communities of today's west. These are the remnants of the long trail. Before that time, and since that time, it was and has been the same pony and the same man who have traveled that range, guarding and guiding the wild herds from the romantic to the commonplace days of the West. And with that, we'll conclude this first reading of The Passing of the Frontier by Emerson Howe. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.